HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria, every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45, joined again with uh, Jack. How you doing, Jack? I'm great. Yeah, you're, you're back. Where were you, where were you on the vacation? Where, where I, uh, vacation? I was, I was working. I was performing at Bonnaroo. Ah, performing, but like... <clears throat> For like, the Heritage Radio or for for your band? For my DJ performance collective, we are called Full Service. So What's there were sixteen of us. Are you in fact a full service DJ collective? Yeah. Let me ask you a question, Jack. <clears throat> now, you know, just based on what you're what you play here, you don't like, you know, spin like wedding hits, right? That's not your No, your that's channel. not really our gig. Yeah. Okay. But <clears throat> let me ask you we a question. Could, though. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah, sure. Let me ask you a question. This thing that people do now nowadays at parties where they play like 30 seconds of a song that I really love <clears throat> and then they throw it into some other song that I may or may not like but then it's, it's only ever like 30 seconds at a time of a song what, 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 what's with that what is that well I mean I guess that's you know if you're looking for a professional DJ right or if someone's making a career as a DJ you have to do something that sets yourself apart from somebody that might just have Spotify because anybody with Spotify could just play a song that everybody knows yeah, but to keep a, in other words, to keep a room grooving, how many of these people, when they're switching this stuff up, keep people's asses pumping the entire time? They don't. They always f- flub it. It's always messed. I guess it depends on where you are. And do I really want to hear 30 seconds of Hypnotize, or do I want Biggie Smalls to, like, you know, bash me all the way through on that thing? That's a fair point. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, you know, <clears throat> I, just, I, just don't, I just don't get it. I just, I just don't get it. Because if you, like, a lot, like, like old school DJs, right, they weave stuff in and out, but they're really just kind of... Like, you, you lay down a long, a long, long, long track that you can just keep grooving to fundamentally all night, right? And then you can layer tunes in and out of that. But it's not like they're literally playing the tune for 30 seconds and then just doing the crossfade, right? Which is what yeah. I feel people are doing now. Or a lot of remixes and stuff. <clears throat> weak. All right. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I don't know. Do you think it's not weak? Tell me why it's not weak. Why it's not weak? Why would I just describe, like... 30 seconds of hypnotize and then crossfade into some other song it doesn't even necessarily uh, have the way you're describing that doesn't sound so good Meek. yeah Meek. 
You'd think that these DJs, when they're doing this, would notice that everyone's leaving the dance floor. Well, that's your answer. If people are leaving the dance floor, then you're failing. Yeah. <clears throat> Another thing, if any of you are getting married out there, enough with the brown-eyed girl. Seriously. Jack, can you dance to brown-eyed girl at, at a wedding? No. I don't really dance at weddings, though. Oh, there you go, DJ. What about you? What about you, Stas? I haven't been to a wedding in a while. Yeah, but when you go out dancing, what do you like when they play like those like those songs that are good songs, but they're like you want songs that everyone's butt can gyrate to, right? Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Good gyrating beat, boof, 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 boof. Enough water on the sidelines so people don't die. You can like finger snap to Brown Eyed Girl, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but everyone, look, unless you are freaking Fred Astaire, you're not going to stand around in front of uh, you know your friends, family, and God forbid someone that you're trying to get in bed with, and snap your fingers. Probably not. Yeah. All right, listen, we have more time later on this, Jack. Do you have uh, Chris on the phone? Uh, no, we can get him on the phone right yeah, now. Yeah, well, I'll, read, I'll, I'll uh, talk about the question a bit, and then uh, while you're getting him on the phone, we'll try to do this here. So uh, I got a question. Actually, it was into the, uh, into the Twitter uh, by uh, Chuck Schneider <coughs> asking um, about a recipe that was published on Sh- uh, Chef Steps for mi cui, you know, partially cooked mi cui. You like that word or don't like it, Sus? You don't like it? Why? What does it sound like to you? No, no, go get to the Anyway, well, I can't. Chris is not on the phone yet. I thought you were going to talk about it. Well, I mean, he has to hear the question, so I'm not going to... Anyway, so it's about Miqui uh, sandwiches, like, you know, partially cooked. And the question... I've got Chris on the line. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? <clears throat> I'm doing well. How are you, Dave? All right. So I've uh, got a question about one of your Chef Step uh, recipes. Uh, and I'm, sure. pr- I'm presuming it's yours because when someone asked a question, you commented. So I'm presuming that means it's probably your recipe. It's for uh, the Miqui... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, the Miqui salmon. And the sure. question was from... Uh, Chuck Schneider, it was, uh, dear folks, I love the flavor texture of this, meaning your recipe, but curious how it compares to both raw or traditional cooked product safety-wise. <clears throat> now, uh, just for, you know, uh, you want to, like, give me, give me like, the 30-second, like, rundown. The, the difference between this low-temperature salmon and the one that was, the ones that are popularized by, like, the Roca-style cooking that was, uh, you know, came into vogue. I don't know, around 2001, 2002, <clears throat> is that this one is uh, cooked, well, cooked in quotes. I'm put, making air quotes around the microphone, and then uh, refrigerated afterwards and actually kept, which is non, not the way that uh, you know, the early low-temp and sous-vide jockeys were doing. So with that in mind, why don't you give us the like 30-second rundown of the recipe? Sure. Well, the important thing to recognize is that it's not only cooked or par-cooked, but it's also lightly cured with salt. And so you have two factors improving the safety. You've got a bit of salt that in combination with the heating is more effective at, uh, at uh, providing a margin of safety than heat alone. And for, for various reasons, we actually tested this recipe with an independent food research laboratory where it was challenge tested uh, for a two-week period. And we, we actually showed that although the, the heating temperature alone wouldn't ensure adequate uh, uh, margins of safety, the combination of the salt and the heat together uh, showed that the recipe was actually quite safe against uh, the, the usual pathogens. Um, and so we feel pretty confident in recommending it. Um, it was only 40 degrees so C, though, right? Sorry? The cooking temperature was only 40 degrees C, right? That's right, 104. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> 104 Fahrenheit. Like, in fact, for many bacteria, that's... So people... Let's just, let's just get this straight, straight, straight off the top. Chris, but, you know, for those of you that don't know, I don't know how the hell you would be listening to this if you don't know who Chris Young is, but Chris Young is uh, one of the founders of Chef Steps, and if you haven't gone to that website yet, I recommend you go right away, or I would wait 35 minutes and then go. Uh, the other, uh, 
you know, also, uh, you know, uh, one of the authors of Modernist Cuisine, the greatest cookbook achievement of all times. And, uh, <laughs> and so there, there's a bunch of things when you're, when you're doing food safety, and, you know, Chris will, will chime in in a second. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting, interesting words about uh, how the health departments across the country and nationally handle food safety in Modernist Cuisine, if you haven't had a chance to read those sections yet. Um, I especially like the submarine thing. You like that? It's not really food safety, but that submarine thing changed my life. They, I, I will talk about it later because Chris is limited on time. But someone remind me to talk about the submarine thing if I haven't already. Is that everyone's favorite section of modernist cuisine or not, Chris? With the, with the, uh, with the, the butt dye. Uh, uh, it's probably not. <laughs> Maybe yours. Oh, so it's definitely one of mine. I mean, like, <clears throat> I mean, that's like crazy. I have to get into it. I'm sorry. So the the thing is, is you know how how. How how much are like uh, germs? Let's just call them uh, on people really spread about, you know. And uh, this doctor, a naval doctor on board a submarine, gave uh, exams to the sailors, and then said that he was testing their 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 nether regions, their behinds, uh, for something, and instead put a, a phosphorescent powder dye. Uh, in their butts, and then uh, like a day later, walked around the submarine with a UV lamp, and the entire freaking sub lit up from the phosphorescent stuff. Is it pretty much accurate? Yeah. And I was like... I, I, yeah, I, I, the funny thing is, I don't think it's mentioned who that story came from, but the person, the, the sailor in question who told uh, us that story was the, the, the renowned Craig Vintner, uh, the decoder of the human genome during his time in the Navy. So he's actually the source of that. So, so presumably reputable. Uh, I think so. Nice. I like that. That's strong. Strong. So you, you heard it here first, folks. Okay. <clears throat> back, to, back to what we're saying here. So here are some true statements. Uh, the, the, any food safety uh, organization in the world, their job isn't to uh, figure out the minimum possible thing that's safe from a bacteria or whatever standpoint uh, for a particular recipe. Their job is to provide bulletproof uh, uh, you know, guidelines such that no one can mess things up and no one's going to get food poisoned. And such, all of the rules are always overkill, 100% of the time. 100% of the time. Um, yep. Now, the, uh, but he, here's, the, here's the thing. There's a little magical thing. And the, and the two magic words, because I was going to get in an argument with Chris about, like, you know, the levels, blah, blah, blah. He, he said the two magic words, which, which were challenge study. Now, if, if you, what a challenge study is, is you, you, you actually usually incubate whatever you're going to cook with the pathogen of choice, and then uh, you do your procedure to it, and then they test it uh, you know, with a certain number of, uh, of iterations to prove that, that the bacteria of interest doesn't grow. And if your procedure does that, then it's safe. Am I accurate or no? Yep. Yeah. And, and so that, that, that's, that's exactly the approach we, we took. We were working with a, a food retailer who was interested in this recipe, and, and so they, they funded this. And that recipe was actually put put to the test, and and certainly heating alone as a control would fail. And and if your if your salmon was unsafe, um, you would increase the risk slightly. Although, in my opinion, you know what we found from that is it's probably not any safer, even if you skip the salting step, than eating than eating most sushi. Um, but if you add the salt in combination with heating, and you start out with a reasonable, you know, obviously you shouldn't have a, a horrible, nasty product. But if you start out with reasonably fresh salmon, you know, something you'd get at a typically a, a reputable supermarket or, or fishmonger, and the combination of the salt and the low heating followed by the chilling in refrigeration, 
was adequate to, to provide an appropriate margin of safety. Now, would you, would you avoid pre-butchered fillets? Well, uh, in general, we prefer, you know, it's always the less processing your ingredients have had, generally speaking, the safer they're, they're going to be because there's less opportunity for surface contamination. So it depends on how concerned you are. If you're very, very risk-averse, um, then, you know, maybe the, you know, maybe you, you do want to basically have everything as pristine and handled as little as possible. But you know what? I eat salmon sushi in Seattle, and there was a study that said that one out of four pieces of salmon sushi have viable anisakid worms. So, mm. uh, you know, we, we all do that pretty regularly. You know, most of the time, you know, we take some risk, and it doesn't hurt us. Right, right. But, I mean... <laughs> and, and these are yeah. really minor risks. Well, okay, so here's the... Here are the, the two bacteria I'm going to ask you about because I'm sure these are the ones that people one of the some that concerned was botulism and listeria, right? So, yep. and both of those were tested in the challenge. Uh, no, we didn't do that because we were going to have adequate refrigeration, um, and and you were not going to have. So, with botulism, you have to under, undergo spore outgrowth, and and our process does not allow nearly enough time to basically trigger spore uh, spore germination and outgrowth. So, well, but there's you no there's, botulism out. So, so you're saying that the soak and the pack time prior to cook isn't enough to cause any germination? No, right. I mean the, the whole the whole process is. Salt the, salt, the, salt the fillets in a brine, you, cook, you, you vacuum seal them and cook them for an hour, and then they're rapidly brought down to refrigeration temperature. So, so you're only in the danger zone about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on the sizes of your piece of, of, of salmon, maybe an hour and 15 minutes, including the cool-down time. Right. That's just not a very long time for, for, for bacterial growth. Uh, now, obviously, if you load it up with with with, with, with viable uh, botulinum um, bacteria rather than the spores, or if you load it up with the listeria bacteria, but those are fairly fairly rare and they shouldn't have grown to large numbers to begin with. So, really, what you're going to be concerned with are, are are is fecal contamination in the form of coliforms right. and salmonella. And you generally want to look at, at, at salmonella because if you're killing the salmonella. It's a very, very good bet that you're, you're killing the other uh, other potential uh, illness-causing bacteria. I mean, it would seem to me it, that it, like it, salmonella doesn't grow sorry? so well in the. It seemed to me that salmonella doesn't grow so well in the fridge. But like your your hope is that you're not going to get a listeria growth. Your hope is that you get rid of enough listeria or that you inhibit its growth with the salt combo enough that it doesn't grow in the fridge because that's the only one that right. But but the other reason is is we're we're looking at refrigeration temperatures of two to three degrees Celsius. And so provided, uh, you know, provided you, you respect that and you provided you only have a two-week shelf life, um, listeria is a minor concern. I, you know, you can't say that this is going to be a product that's good for, for a month or six weeks because now even at refrigerator temperatures, listeria would start to become a concern. So you always you have to keep in mind um, what time scale are you talking about, too. If, if you're going to basically cook it and uh, chill it down and serve it within one to two days, right. uh, it this just isn't a very risky procedure. If, on the other hand, you're a retailer and this might be in your, your supply chain for for a week, you really want to know you have you have a, a, a larger margin of safety during refrigerated storage. Okay, so also people should label their bags. Everyone should label their bags, but I think people at home don't do it very much. Label your <clears throat> bags. And do you recommend yeah, an ice chill down or no? I mean, people at home do weird things with their, their fridge. For, for starters, you know, just realize that, you know, any, almost anybody's home fridge that I've ever seen would be condemned by a health department. Uh, fair point, Dave? Yeah, fair point. Uh, and then the, the other side of it is I read a really weird thing 
like something like 25% of the population changes the temperature of their refrigerator uh, seasonally based on how warm or cold it is outside. Why would they do that? I have no idea. I, like my brain melted a little bit when, 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 I, when I read that finding from, from a large appliance manufacturer. And so, you know, this, this was a recipe that was, you know, meant for chefs and meant for enthusiastic home cooks who are going to be knowledgeable about food safety and be reasonable. And so as long as, you know, you use high-quality ingredients, as long as you do salting and cooking for, for relatively short amounts of time, and then as long as you chill it down and keep it in a cold refrigerator, right. as long as you consume it within a week, this is a very, very safe recipe. Okay, so here's, here, um, here's what I'm going to say, because in case people don't look at the recipe right away, your brine percent was 10%, so stuff's not going to be growing in that brine during the brining procedure, and the brining procedure done cold, correct? Yes. Okay. Once you take it out, don't let it sit on the counter in the bag. Do your cook step and re-chill it, uh, you know, lickety-split so that you stay in the, in the evil window as short a time as possible, correct? Yep. And label the bag and keep it in the coldest part of your uh, fridge or, you know, if you can, maybe even on like an ice pack in the fridge. Good point or not good point? Uh, exactly. Good point. <clears throat> and, but challenge study done and proven safe or proven, proven does not decrease the safety level of the fish that you started with. Appreciably yeah. proven that it ha- proven that it was adequately safe at two weeks. Right now, people, bear in mind that safety levels are done for different uh, things. So there's like uh, what we're talking about here is something that doesn't appreciably uh, add to uh, risks, as opposed to completely eliminating risks that are already. So don't dip your salmon in poop and do this recipe. That's right. You need a different recipe if you're going to dip your salmon in poop beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to see that recipe. Hey, but that, no, but, but like, like all kidding aside, I mean, like a lot of the recipes out there, a lot of the the, the rules out there where they make you hammer everything, are done with the with the fact in mind that you might be horribly contaminated with you know quite literally with poop. Yeah, and and you know the the funny thing is we we worry about the risk of say a salmon mequi or a rare uh, a, a piece of chicken that's still slightly pink, but the inconsistency is. We all eat salads with foraged ingredients, and, and, you know, we've all had grit in our salad. I mean, that's not just dirt. There's other things mixed in there. So one of the, one of the things is you really have to, you know, look at a recipe and say, well, what level of risk am I really taking from that? And where we think, what we tend to think is risky as cooked uh, is often not the riskiest thing we do. Yeah, yeah. Hey, do you have to uh, hightail it, or can I uh, bring up another thing with you real quick? Yeah, I've got a few minutes, so go ahead. All right. So I uh, had another question in. Uh, this is from uh, John Riper in Seattle, and he's actually got another question I'll take later that uh, Chris doesn't need to stay on for. But uh, I saw also, I don't know who's over there is doing it, but I know you've done a lot of work with uh, cheese, and he had a question about his cheese curds. Uh, he said, the sources I've seen uh, for cheese, you know, cheese curds and cheese uh, all use calcium chloride when they want to fortify the calcium levels of milk for firmer curds. Presumed. By the way, p- people, what happens is, is uh, during uh, the – uh, pasteurizing and storage process of uh, milk that you buy in the store, you know, um, some of the calcium is rendered no longer available. You need the calcium there for the binding of the, you know, it's a, it's a, <clears throat> it's a uh, divalent uh, cation. You need it there to bind the uh, curds together. If it's not there, you won't get a firm curd. And so people add sometimes calcium if they're going to use store-bought milk uh, to uh, increase the firmness of their curds. And his question is, why are, aren't they using calcium lactate or calcium gluconate? Is there a good reason or is it just price? <laughs> Almost certainly just price and that you're adding very small concentrations so that you don't tend to notice the slight bitterness. Right. I mean, even I, who hate uh, calcium chloride, I mean, the recipes I saw, they're using like a hundredth of a percent. 
you know, something yep. t- tiny. So no one's going to taste that. No. You know, and no, then, you know that that's that's such a minor level of bitterness that uh, um, you know even super tasters who are people who are hypersensitive to to bitter, um, I would be surprised if they're really picking up any substantial uh, bitterness from that. And then the other thing, uh, yeah. So that's that's my opinion. I think it's mostly just a price and convenience factor. Calcium lactate on a commercial scale is just a lot more expensive than uh, calcium uh, chloride, and, and it's also less readily available. Right. So point oh one percent. I mean, I'm, that's actually, that's got to be too low. That's a tenth of a gram in a liter, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a ten, tenth know, of a gram in a liter. Because you, you do have calcium already present. So, so the, the, one of the things to recognize is you're really just fortifying. Yeah, I would, and I would say that that is almost an order of magnitude below the taste threshold. I, I would suspect that's pretty near or below. I haven't actually seen a, 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 any studies on what the threshold is. I mean, I'm just saying, I'm, bitterness. imagine imagine dissolving a single gram of calcium chloride into a liter of water, right? And you're doing 10 times less than that. I'm guessing that it's not going to be that uh, apparent. <clears throat> you're doing 10 times less than that. You're doing a gram into 10 liters of, of first of all, not water, of milk. And a lot of the whey, which is going to have a lot of that stuff, is going to be expelled as well. So you're not going to – I mean the calcium is going to be bound up and the free calcium chloride, a lot of it will be expelled. I mean non-tasteable. Mm-hmm. And another reason to use it is that it, you ha- can use a lot less than you use of the other ones and it is extremely soluble. So you don't have any issues where you might have, uh, I don't know, some piece of grit left over that didn't get dissolved because you didn't agitate it enough and it got strained out or some sort of nightmare situation like that. So I would just stick with the calcium chloride. Uh, easier to, you know, easier to purchase, cheaper, and definitely not going to taste it at that at that level. Right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, here's I got a caller. Oh, wait, wait, hold on. Once, can, can we have them both on? Yeah. All right, caller, you're on All the right. air. Maybe not. Hey, there. Hey. Hey, Dave. It's uh, Colin down in D.C. How you doing? Doing all right. How's life? Hi, Colin. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Colin, whether you're listening, but Chris Young's also on the air with us. So it sounds like uh, the last guy was asking something about calcium, but I just had a, uh, was making some caramelized onions, and, you know, I've seen people, you know, uh, Kenji Lopez out and uh, Kaimos, all those folks are into using a little baking soda to kind of help it along. Because the basicity of it, you know, speeds up the browning. Right. But also, you know, that I tried that and wasn't very impressed because it does make it really mushy because it, it breaks down the pectin, right? Uh, but it I got to thinking, it helps, it helps uh, yeah. if you use calcium hydroxide, would that give you the enhanced browning but also keep the pectin firm? Well, you're not going to bra- – no. calcium hydroxide is not so soluble, so you don't want to use it – as your yeah, you, like you don't want to use it for that application. No. Yeah. Okay. It, it, it also the the problem is it's it's the what what speeds the browning is alkaline conditions, but alkaline conditions also speed the, the the dissolving of the cell wall. So it really doesn't matter what salt you use to raise the pH, whether you use cal- gotcha. whether you use baking soda or calcium hydroxide. But, cal- but calcium, calcium in the the interesting thing about calcium hydroxide, and I have done tests on this, but not with browning because oh, they I were see. done aqueous. Is yeah, that, I see. So using the calcium ions to try to crosslink the 
the, the cell, the, the pectin in the cell walls. Yeah, that works, but, but it won't work for your application because calcium hydroxide, you, what you would need to do is a pre-soak in a calcium bath, get the calcium into the vegetables, then lower the pH for the browning. You see what I'm saying? See what yeah, I'm saying, yeah. Chris? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so, so you basically do what, uh, what, what ticklers often do where they, they infuse uh, some calcium salts to keep, to keep the pickles crunchier after, after retorting. Sure, yeah. Or right. pressure canning. Right. So you can, for instance, you can do, you can do the calcium, uh, yeah, you, you know, you can do the calcium hydroxide in a boil a little bit to do, to, to prevent, uh, to prevent the browning of broccoli, let's say, and still keep yeah. it crunchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, we've used it to a lot of other beneficial applications. It just seemed like a place where, you know, it has the, it had the hydroxide and it had the calcium all in one spot. Right, but and if you, if you're curious if it would, yeah, uh, kill two birds with one stone. But it would, it, it would not, like it would not do the browning kind of stuff it. that you would get out of like the uh, what was it you guys did in the modernist cuisine? Was that butternut squash that you added to the? Pressure cooker, or was it uh, 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 the the the? It, we did it with carrots. Uh, carrots. It? We did it with butternut squash. We do it with banana. We we did it to just about anything we could we could catch. Yeah, but remember they're pressure cooking, so they're going to make it soft. I don't know that even cross-linked pectin. I mean, look, look at look at uh, canned tomatoes. They keep their structure, and they've been canned. So it is possible to use calcium to cross-link the pectin to keep it uh, somewhat intact at retort yeah. retort temps. But that's a good point, Dave. Yeah, two parts, two part process. Or let's go back to the thing we were just talking about, Chris. uh, The calcium, a little bit of calcium chloride, because I don't think it's going to take much. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you again. I think in in with the complex sort of uh, Maillard flavors, I don't think bitterness. I mean, you have other things that are going to be slightly bitter too. So I, I think that'll just fit the flavor profile. So yeah, maybe maybe taking your onion slices and and. If you have a chamber sealer, just do a do a vacuum infusion of, of, of yeah, yeah. some uh, some calcium water, yeah, hard water. Yeah. Uh, uh, and on one last note, uh, similarly, so you know, calcium's you know, divalent ions at least like will crosslink some different uh, different types of stuff we use. And have you seen that uh, with guar gum much? Do you see much of a effect of calcium and other stuff? In the viscosity, I've never seen any. I've never seen any uh, any ion interactivity with guar. Have you, Chris? I mean, it's not. No, and and I haven't worked with guar as much as I have locustine gum. But no, that's not. I, I'm I'm just trying to think this too, and I don't. I wouldn't expect much. I mean, lo- locust bean okay. gum and guar. I, I, I was kind of curious since uh, you know I do a lot of like energy research, and what I was looking at. You know, uh, just water water impacts of hydraulic fracturing, and of course, you use tons of guar gum there. And one of their problems in reusing the water is that you know you get an effect of all these geological salts like calcium chlorides and everything that's underground, causing stuff in their fluids to crosslink and get sicker and get all messed up. Well, don't they That's use... Don't like they use it sounds familiar from kitchen stuff, but... Right. Don't they in fracking... fracking isn't it borated? Don't they use boron? Yeah, boron as well. But, uh, you know, it seems like like boron, zirconium, those, those are things they'll add, but that's not present in a large amount in the geological formations. 
whereas the calcium, there's tons of it. So that'll, right. you know, actually end up in the, you know, it can be like, uh, you know, 10% salinity just of calcium salts in some cases. Right. I mean, but, yeah, I was kind of well, curious. I, I won't say I've ever experimented with calcium levels that high. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'll look it up. It's interesting to me. Uh, I don't know that much about fracking. I know that guar is used because you can rapidly shift the viscosity of it. That's the gimmick. That's the gig, right? right? I don't know how that happens, but I know that whenever you use guar, we use guar as a thickener and we ignore calcium and I use guar in dairy and non although you know it's interesting so like you know, one of my old recipes was a guar gelan low acyl gelan mix and <clears throat> there's definitely a synergy between uh, low acyl gelan and guar that doesn't exist with locust bean gum I don't but I was only doing that in a milk based system and I never tried it in a non dairy system so maybe there is some sort of weak calcium uh, reactivity that just I've never been a- aware of but I can look it up but it's not my memory I'll go check the uh, handbook of hydrocolloids the uh, Nusevich classic unless there's some newer book I need to look at but I'll check it out Okay well great thanks for thanks for feeling a bunch of stuff All right thank you Well I'm keeping on Cool thanks Dave uh yeah Chris for having me on, I, I do need to run now. All right, cool. Thanks, Chris. And uh, you know, hopefully, I, this is this is good. This is a good part about knowing people is that when someone asks a question that relates to them, we can just call them. Yeah, always appreciate it. Good to talk to you. All right, thanks, Chris. And we'll take a break and come back with more cooking issues. has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Seeing a need to help people sort through all the misinformation about healthy eating, Whole Foods Market added a seventh core value to promote the health of our stakeholders through healthy eating education. In our stores, we give you the tools you need for choosing the most nutritious foods and healthy recipes, as well as offering classes with nutritionists and cooking coaches to help inspire good health and well-being. Stop by your local store today and learn more about our Health Starts Here program and wellness clubs or online at wholefoodsmarket.com slash healthstartshere. And oh, welcome back to Cooking Issues. That was fun, right? Having Chris on the phone? Yeah? Mm-hmm. yeah. Caller. By the way. Stas, what did you think of that? What? What, Jack? What did you think of the phone, the phone and phone, two phoners at the same time? It's hard because they can't see each other. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not answering that, Jack. Yeah. Yeah, she's not Fair answering enough. that because she didn't even hear the question. No, because no, no. She, people, people, trying. she didn't even have her headphones on. No, Like, no, that's no, how no. important her text session was, that she didn't even have her headphones on. All right, let's, Yikes. uh, yeah. I had, I had a quick, like, fun little summer question for you. All right. Roasting marshmallows. Yes. What's your technique? I use a Searsalt. <laughs> come on though but, I mean, yeah, come on yes. N- no campfire technique uh, well look here's my feeling on marshmallows there, there are a couple schools of thought I can think of three there's the I don't give a crap school of thought right in which case they just do it and then there's on the either end there's the lightly toasted puffed golden brown marshmallow lovers right and then there's the burnt crust gooey inside like charcoal kind of lovers which one are you uh, I, I i don't know i'd say probably the first yeah but you know it's nice to kind of give it a quick zap in there and then you just kind of peel off that burned layer yeah and then, then you can kind of go again you know that's yeah that's nice true thing. it's true styles do you do you, are you are you one of those freaks that doesn't like toasted marshmallows i do okay what do you which which kind do you like 
We just did it on a campfire last week. And that's not what I'm asking. I said between the two things that you weren't listening to that I was talking about, which one do you prefer? Um, I don't know. Do you prefer it lightly toasted or do you prefer lightly, it charred? Lightly toasted. Oh but both. Do you I see people? Both. People, do you see? Do you see what I I'm dealing with? I don't want to say the wrong thing. It's, there's no there's wrong. The wrong there's no wrong. It's a, it's a choice. So the, uh, <clears throat> I think it's the, the difficulty with the lightly toasted one is that um, a lot of times when you're doing it that way, you don't get like a gooey enough inside. Now, some people might want the inside to be totally raw to have that kind of chew to it. But I think that often when people do that, they're going to under they're going to underdo the inside. So to do that one really right, it takes more patience than most of us can muster because you have to hold it yeah. fairly high above the flame. You have to rotate it constantly and make sure that you don't have any one section too you know too burnt. Um, and just who has that kind of patience, especially if you're using a four-inch stick that's a pain to turn around. It's you know tough. what I mean? It's I was tough. cheating. I kind of I put a stick in the ground uh, over the weekend and just kind of kept it sort of close to the fire and kept it there for like 15 minutes so it really slowly cooked. And how was it? It was great. See, that's the thing. I think that's probably a good – that's a good technique. It just who has that kind of – you know, that's, that's more patience than I can – if I want a s'more or a toasted marshmallow, I want that sucker like now. Enter the Searsall. Enter the Searsall. Although you still have to be careful with the Searsall because uh, although it does it quickly and it's more even, you can still, you know, uh, very quickly set the outside of a marshmallow on fire because, you know, the thing with the marshmallow is it's dry. There's not a lot, uh, a lot of water there. So once it starts going brown, it can then go black and then ignite fairly quickly. So you have to, you know, you have to be, you have to, you know, be gentle with it. So it's like it's either either you risk the burn or you take your time. Those, those are the two choices. I like them charcoal, to be honest. Although I like a toasted one every now and again, but I don't know. I love that outside kind of charcoal overcooked action too. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So John Riper's other question, which I'll get before I get to the other question. By the way, uh, should you have any questions in the next couple of minutes, call them to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Oh, yeah, Jack, your question. I think it's tough with two people on the phone because they can't see when the other one's going to talk. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Jack's sep- uh, John's uh, separate uh, second question. What are your thoughts on equipment to create a cheese aging environment at home? Wine cooling units seem to have good temperature control, but they don't cu- control humidity or aim for a uh, lower relative humidity than – or they aim for a lower relative humidity than cheeses need. Is DIY the only way to go or is there a VISA, meaning spending money from your credit card? Alternative, John Riper in Seattle. Well, okay. Uh <clears throat> Actually, you know what I've gotten a lot of questions on recently is this uh, – oh, jeez, I can't remember the name. It's called the Steak Locker. Have you been getting questions about this recently? Have you been seeing – has Mark been asking you about this? Nope. It's like a Kickstarter thing. It's available right now where it's um, it's kind of like a wine cooler, but it's, it's tweaked out for uh, dry-aging steaks. So it's got humidity and temperature control for dry-aging steaks and like you know, a light bulb so you can see what's on. You can – Put a salt slab in there if that's your jammy. Uh, anyways, so uh, that's got temperature and humidity control. <clears throat> However, it uh, it's going to be putting it at a lower relative humidity than you want. So, so that's probably not going to work for you. Here's what you're going to want to do. You're going to want to go. Uh, the only one I could that I know of offhand, and I've never used it, so I don't um, I don't really know how awesome it is. But the only kind of semi off the shelf, so it's not 100% DIY, but it's not 100% you know like plug and play. Uh, Auburn Instruments, who uh, you know is a leader in incredibly cheap uh, temperature control stuff, uh, has the TH210 temperature and humidity controller for curing fridge uh, and high relative humidity. Right, so that's the key that it can do high relative humidity, and that's 119 bucks from uh, Auburn Instruments. And you just set your fridge on 
coldest, plug the fridge into the temperature plug on this thing, and then uh, whatever you're going to use to control the humidity. So, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily recommend like a pan with a small heater to increase the humidity in the in the fridge, but you, or you could get a small humidifier that sits in the fridge. Uh, presuming that the fridge maintains a relative, lower relative humidity than you need, and then you just plug those two things in, set it, and you can walk away, and it should work. So you buy a fridge or you know a working fridge, one of these units for 119 bucks, and some form of uh, humidifier that you like, and and plug it in and go. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Um, now we had a question in that uh, we missed before. Tom Fisher writes, "Where's he? Where does he live anyway? Do you know? Do you remember?" Shoot, I don't remember where he lives. Let's see if we can find it. Dear Dave, Anastasia, and Jack, I have a logistics problem. I've fallen in love with hot lobster rolls. Hot lobster rolls sounds uh, like vaguely kind of uh, vaguely kind of dirty, right? Hot lobster roll. Doesn't it sound like some sort of like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I like them. I like, they're delicious, but something sounds like hot, hot and roll. It's hot and roll together, I think, right? Anyway. Uh, and I'd like to make them at home. The problem is the lobster meat. It, same, it seems... Way too expensive in both time and dollars to buy live lobster just to steam them to get the meat. Frozen lobster meat would work, but the affordable sources only have it in two-pound packages. I need single-serving sizes of four to eight ounces, and I don't want to resort to canned lobster. Any ideas? Uh, Okay, well... I mean, look, in a lobster roll, it probably doesn't make uh, much difference. The only frozen lobster experience I've ever had was with uh, Whole Foods. Uh, One day I had to do a a low-temperature demonstration, and I went to Whole Foods to buy lobster, not knowing that they somehow think that it's inhumane for you to kill a lobster at home, but it is humane to have some dude in a factory in Canada kill the crap out of the lobster and then freeze it for you. Does that make any damn sense to you, Stas? Makes no damn sense, right? Are Canadians inherently less cruel as people towards lobsters than Americans? I don't know. Jack, do you have any thoughts on the relative cruelty of Canadian lobster killers and Americans? I think it's even. Even Stephen, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I would bet that in a commercial environment, like, I don't know, I bet it's even rougher. At home, you know, people are like, oh, sorry, buddy, you know, and they throw it into the pot. You know what I'm saying? It is true that commercially uh, they use uh, high pressure when they're doing a uh, steam, so it probably maybe kills them a little bit faster. I don't know. But I've already done plenty of work on lobster killing, so I'm not going to talk about it now. I'm not going to get into it because I don't have time. But uh, here's what I would say. If, if you can buy a two-pound block of lobster meat that you like – by the way, also, if you train yourself in ripping a lobster apart, there's almost no time in breaking a lobster down. Like – I, I remember I was uh, – uh, Bobby Flay opened this place called Bar American. I don't know if it's still open, like a million years ago, right? I went to the opening party, and they had this giant lobster out there, and it was crowded, so crowded. And uh, you know, for anyone that's grown up on the Cape uh, or grown up around the Cape or on the East Coast and like eating a lot of lobster, I mean, we know how to break lobsters down fast. You know what I'm saying? Now, it's true. If you want to get 100% yield out of a lobster, you got to rip it open, like break open the bodies, get, this, get the meat out. But in a small lobster, that's not such a big thing anyway. And getting the meat out of the claws is a little bit of a, a, little bit of a hassle sometimes. But the guy goes – I said, you know, they didn't have enough hors d'oeuvres because they had more people than they thought, right? So they had that – you know how like when they're opening a restaurant, they have like the raw bar out that no one's really eating off of? It's just there for display. You know what I'm talking about, Stas? Yes. You've seen that a million yes. times, right? So they had this like big old lobster, like a three-pounder or something there or you know, a two-and-a-half, three-pounder or something, <clears throat> you know, medium size for, for, you know, for people who get really big lobsters but big for you know, being served on a plate. And I say to the guy uh, – you know, one of the – I was like, hey uh, – can I eat that? He goes, if you can get the meat out. I was like, I literally, as soon as he said, if you can get the meat out, within within maybe 10 seconds, I had the tail meat completely out of the lobster and I was eating it. And the guy had that 
what the look on his face because anyone that's grown up eating lobster knows how to get the tail out of a lobster with no equipment and like almost instantly, you know? You know how to do it, right? You know how to break a lobster. You go to Rhode Island enough. Anyways, my point being that uh, you can get the, the majority of the lobster meat out in well under a minute. Now, it's, then it, it's, it's minutes and minutes if you want to get the rest. The advantage then is if you want to make like a – like a, if you want to use the bodies and the insides to make some sort of a soup or stock, you can and then freeze that out. But if you don't want – if you want to buy the frozen meat, fine. Let's talk about the frozen meat which I can't vouch for the texture of it, but in a lobster roll, it'll probably be okay. The texture of this stuff I got at Whole Foods, maybe if I had uh, done a high-temp traditional cook, it would have been okay, but low-temp, it just fell apart on me. I couldn't get it to work right. Anywho, uh, I would go and purchase a, uh, a meat or a brand, either a brand-new stainless steel hacksaw or a uh, meat uh, uh, you know, saw and uh, have it around anyway. It's going to be useful for hams and whatnot. And then you can just saw the uh, – get really cold, get everything really cold and saw the two-pound block of meat into portions and then uh, either uh, Ziploc and get rid of the air or better yet vacuum pack the individual portions in the fridge. And then when it comes time to, to cook them, just throw the individual servings of meat into, uh, into you know, water inside the bag. They'll thaw out fairly quickly and then you can uh, cook as – uh, desired uh, and making a lobster roll. What do you think? Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. So I like, sounds good. I eat. Don't care. I eat. Don't care. Uh, okay. Now we got some more questions. Um, I had, it takes me longer to get my iPad now. That I had to change the password because my kids figured it out. Mm-hmm. Don't you hate that? I mean, you don't hate that. You don't. You don't know what I'm talking about. But like the kids, they they break into your into your iPad all the time and play stupid games that rot their mind, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway. Um, okay. Wyatt Burns from Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn writes in, hey, Jack, Dave, and Nastasha. I currently make seltzer in my apartment with the liter soda bottle technique. So that's using a liter soda bottle, a 25 or 10 pound CO2 tank, and a carbonator cap. We go through it pretty quickly in the summer, so I'd like to upgrade to a carbonator system. I listened to the episode where you explain your home system, and I would like to implement something similar, but I have a few questions. Uh, Okay. Uh, so what we're talking about, uh, peoples, is instead of having a system where you have to constantly make seltzer like a chump, so that would be either the bottle system or soda stream or similar, right, which is like well well above the super chump, which is going to the store and buying seltzer, which is if you live in New York City and have our awesome tap water, you know, and you buy case after case of seltzer, you're pretty much a chump. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Chump. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, you said you have a McCann carbonator, but which model would be appropriate for our light non-industrial use? Would the Big, Bat, Big Mac be fine or overkill? Also, how loud are these things, and do they run constantly or only when seltzer is being dispensed? Okay, so, so when you're, when you're bu- buying a, a professional carbonator, people, uh, what, what you have is you have a little rotary vane uh, pump. It's the same pump, that similar pump, same company, uh, Procon, that's used in uh, commercial espresso machines, right? And uh, they what, – because well, what happens is, is the carbonator is a tank. It's fundamentally a tank. Uh, and the tank is hooked up to high-pressure CO2. Now, remember, you're carbonating water in a carbonator at – like 100 PSI. And the reason is, is that you're doing it at root, with room temperature water. And so you need a much higher pressure than you would use if you were going to carbonate in a bottle, let's say. Right? Okay. So, uh, so here you have, you have a high pressure tank and your water, even if you have a very high pressure water system, 
which some people in the city do, depending on kind of how high their building is and where they are in the building, you're still not going to really top out much higher than like 60 PSI. So what you need is you need a motor that can uh, pump rather that can force under pressure the water through and into that tank. And it sprays the water into the CO2 tank so that it carbonates instantly. Then you have a hose that comes off uh, and you dispense. You need a good dispenser for it. Really good dispenser that people always chintz on the dispenser and that's where they ruin their seltzer, the chumps. There's also a very, there's a special way to, uh, to hook up a carbonator for the first time to get it to work. And if, you know, if anyone buys one and they want me to come on and tell them how to hook it up, I'll, I'll tell them how to hook it up on the air. It's not difficult, but it'll take a couple minutes, longer than I have right now. Okay, so the, the choices you have, the motors are all the same, and you already have the tank. So the difference in carbonators is the size of the reservoir that the seltzer is in. And I would get the Big Mac because it's going to turn on less. Uh, and you know that, that's what I used. I used to have a smaller one, and it just turned on a lot more often. So I would just get the Big Mac because if you're going to have a dinner party and someone's going to pull a pitcher of seltzer out of it, then you're going to wish you had the Big Mac. Just saying. Go for the Big Mac. Okay. Um, also, how loud are they, and do they run constantly? They don't run constantly. They, what they, there's a little uh, a float, like in a toilet, but not with toilet water. There's a float that uh, judges when the water is below a certain level, uh, and when that happens, it kicks on. It fills it uh, up you know, to its final fill level and then turns off. So I'd say that you know it cycles on every gallon or so of seltzer that you pull, like every, like something like three quarters or a gallon, somewhere in that in that range. Uh, and how loud are they? How loud they are depends entirely on the rate of water flow into the carbonator. So you need to filter the water that goes into the carbonator. Even New York City tap water, which is famously you know uh, clean tasting and good, um, a lot of times some there, there can be chlorine in if they if they have an upstream problem with uh, something. They'll dose chlorine into the water, and that makes seltzer taste like poison. So you got to get rid of that. Also, your pipes uh, sometimes like throw sediment and other things into the water that can affect. Because even minor taste defects in in, in tap water uh, get incredibly magnified by. Um, by uh, the seltzer making process, so you need a filter. The problem is, is that most filters, when you when people when they hook them up, they hook them up with a really crappy water supply line, such that they use some sort of three eighths flex cable into the filter instead of like a half inch, uh, you know, full water su- copper water supply line. And what happens there is, is that when the seltzer is trying to pump in, it chokes up, and when it chokes up, you get a very small flow of water through your filter. So you actually want the coarsest filter you can that has the, you know, the, the, uh, that, that provides the, the taste that you want. So you don't want like a super heavy-duty like removes cysts, removes lead. You just want an odor and taste and chlorine-removing filter. All right, so it, it chokes up, and once it chokes up, it starts cavitating. When it cavitates, it gets really, really, really loud. And then when it comes, you'll know when it's time to change your filter because all of a sudden your carbonator will get really, really loud. When you have a fresh filter, it's fairly quiet. And if you keep it under the counter and keep the door closed in the cabinet that it's in... Um, Another caveat: When you install a new system, there's flux and crap in the uh, in the uh, in your copper lines uh, from the soldering and just residue and stuff. You want to put that stuff through a filter. You don't want that getting into your carbonator because then the water is going to taste like poison for a while. And also, your first filter is going to clog within like a week or less. And don't worry about it. Just the second filter you have in there is going to last uh, a lot, lot longer. So anyway, there you go. Uh, two, I don't have an ice maker and really don't want to use a traditional ice chest for the cold plate. Shit, you're telling me, man. I did that for 10 years. I had a, a, an ice bucket with my cold plate in it, and I had to fill it every day with ice. 
but you know, it's a hassle. It's, it's a hassle. But I did it for 10 years. Are there any other techniques for chilling a water line that don't require ice? I'm considering modding a cheap mini freezer to directly chill a water bath that the cold plate is submerged in, but maybe I'm overthinking this. That won't work so well. Um, you need ice because what's happening is, is it's the actual melting of the ice that is um, – it's the melting of the ice that is providing the quick hit to make it cold. And so you really need uh, melting ice. You could theoretically um, – you know, use only carbonate cold water and keep the carbonator in, in, a, in a mini fridge and the water in a mini fridge. And then as long as your draw wasn't too low, you could do it. But it's kind of a pain. I'd really – I would recommend – if you have the money, I can – I currently have an undercounter Manitowoc ice machine that is freaking amazing. The cold plate fits right in the bottom of the ice maker. And now I have fresh ice for drinks, for cocktails, or whatever else. And it just it, it automatically drains that that mini Manitowoc undercounter ice machine is I have the the boardroom model it's really home friendly I would look at it um, otherwise I'll have to think more if, if none of these work you have to ask me again I'll think more and also in your rig do you run the cold plate before or after the carbonator I imagine I could get away with lower CO two pressure if the water line is already cold going into the carbonator correct not really because you're it's not it's not a system where it carbonates the water now but you're not drinking that water for a long time so if you were to if you were to keep the carbonator in the fridge then yeah you could have a cold plate and you could uh, and you could use a lower pressure and push it through the cold plate first to chill it down carbonate it and put it in but 99% if you I mean most people can't store the carbonator in the fridge cuz it's rather large so what they do is is they carbonate room temperature water which is why you need it to be 100 psi and then uh, they chill it through the cold plate and then dispense but anyway if you have any more questions uh, Wyatt uh, give uh, you know shout them back to me and he says love the show and shouts to gunwash jack shouts to gunwash Wow, it's a first time on this show. Yeah? Look yeah. at that. Yeah. All right. I got one more question that I have to uh, get to today. Do I have a couple minutes, uh, Jack, or no? A couple Sorry, minutes? Sorry, not really. Oh, my God. Jesper in Sweden, there's an auction that's going to end today. Like three minutes? Okay, go. Okay. okay. I previously bought an old Buki rotary evaporator, so I'm not going to have time to explain to everyone what a rotary evaporator is. It's a vacuum still. Uh, on an auction, included was the base system uh, and the condenser and all this and the boiling flask and receiving flask and all that. Look up rotary evaporator on the cooking issues if you want to know. Where I live, i.e. in Sweden, it's not that common to be able to get a cheap to be able to get cheap laboratory equipment on auctions, at least not what I've experienced. Moreover, Buki is a pretty expensive brand, and in, it's Swiss, that's why. And in hindsight, maybe I should have opted for a new complete IKA Ica system instead. Don't. They suck. Remember when we had to use that system and it sucked? It sucked. It sucked. It leaked. I hated it. Remember that? And a leaky rotovap is bad flavor right there. Anyway. However, now I have the R210 base and my questions are related to kitting the system to have it operational. At the same time, one of those rare lab auctions are now taking place in my neighborhood which closes its door in a week on Wednesday, June 25th, Jack, which is why I had to get to it. So it would be great if you could answer my question before that. My first choice is regards to vacuum pumps. Uh, would, uh, would like to have a diaphragm one together with a vacuum controller, but the auctions do not have those. Instead, they have a couple of rotary vein pumps. Now, all the ones that you mentioned are Edwards brand. Edwards are extremely, extremely high-quality vacuum pumps. However, they are way overkill for the rotary evaporator application that you need. If you can get them cheaply, get them. They're awesome, but it's, again, way overkill. Are any of the, uh, especially the, like the E1, M18, and 28, because they handle vapor very well and they have a ballast in them. So then your question is, are any of those rotary vein pumps a good choice in regards to your opinion? My main concern is to vapor and contamination. Should I uh, buy a rotary vein pump and add some kind of inlet condenser or cold trap? You can, but that's a hassle. It's a real hassle. It'll be easier for you to find a diaphragm pump that's going to do what you want. Uh, I use just a re- regular refrigerator 
refrigerator pump, which is a couple hundred dollars, a refrigerator vacuum pump, but it's not ideal either. Do I need something extra apart from the gas ballast valve uh, open? No, nah, not really. And you're going to have to close the gas ballast valve if you're doing really super low temperature stuff. Another important topic related to the vacuum pump is how important is the vacuum controller? They're pretty expensive and they do not uh, have them at the auction. If you're not using a vacuum controller, how do you control the vacuum? You put a bleeder valve on the line so that you can control like a very like a, like a, like a multi-turn needle valve to bleed air out on a T in, the, in, the, in line with the vacuum line. That's how you do it, but it's a hassle because you have to control it. You have to sit there and constantly control it, and it's constantly pumping, which is also not ideal because you're, because you're constantly pumping, you're sucking uh, flavor out of your system. So I don't – I mean I've done it. That's how I used to do it, but I don't highly, rec- highly recommend it. You also uh, mentioned a recirculating cooler that you use for your chiller. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, that will work, but if I looked at the specs on it, and at minus 10C, which is what you're going to want to run at least, it only does 120 watts of cooling. The main mistake people make with condensers is they do not have enough power to condense all the stuff that – they uh, can put that they can uh, boil because the, the heater is at like a thousand watts, and your condenser now is only providing 120 watts of cooling. What that means is your condenser is going to warm up significantly until it gets up to about 20 C. Um, so I can give you more input on that next week because uh, those auctions are over. That's my feedback on the auction uh, items that you have. In other words, if you can get that pump cheap, I would get one of those pumps cheap, but it's not the same thing. And I can also work more on a vacuum controller. But the circulator, it's convenient to have around, but don't expect it to do high volumes. You're only doing 120 watts at minus 10C. So don't expect to do high volumes of rotary evaporator work around it. And, Jesper, I'll get to the rest of your questions next week after the auction is over. This has been Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.